Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We uh, are flying through the book of Exodus because we haven't, <laughs> we missed a session and we're in the last third of every Parsha. So we are flying through the story uh, of Moshe and his birth and his marriage and his commissioning and his not wanting to be commissioned and arguing with God uh, about you've got the wrong guy uh, and God saying, uh, are you talking to me? And so then we have all this like stuff that happens and then Moshe is told to go to Egypt. We've had the plagues, people, in case you missed it. We had the plagues. We jumped over that section because we're in the third, third of the Parsha. Um, this week, Parshat Bo, which is right after the last plague. So we have this last setup, this last confrontation between the God of life and Pharaoh and the Egyptian system, which, which worships death. Uh, and so um, the God of Israel is going to uh, show the God of death what that really means and what that looks like. Uh, and we have the slaying of the firstborn, of course, as part of that narrative. So I want to look a little bit at that this week. Um, I'm not sure what we'll have time for. I have a lot of stuff I want to show you. Um, that's what happens when I have a lot of time to prepare, is I wind up having too many things I want to show you in an hour. So, but I do want to look a little bit at this because we haven't really ever done that. We've looked a lot at the blood on the doorposts. We've looked a lot at taking the lamb and tying it up out back. And all the stuff about that and the danger that that was because the Egyptians worshipped the lamb. Uh, It was one of their astrological signs. It was their favored month was the month of the lamb. So there's lots of reasons that we've talked about the lamb and what that signifies. We we haven't really talked about the slaying of the firstborn um, together. So it's a very disturbing, of course, text. It's a very disturbing thing. Um, And I know it upsets George a lot that God would need to free the Israelites by slaying the firstborn of Egypt. Uh, Like, what kind of a God is that? And so I think we sometimes forget, and I try to remind us and remind myself all the time, you know, we teach what we most need to learn. Um, I try to teach all the time that these stories don't come out of nowhere. Our people did not just make up a story, hey, I know what would be a great representation of our God. Let's have our God kill the firstborn of the enemy. Does that sound like a good idea? Right? That's not how these stories develop. And I think it helps us when we hold them in context and see where they come from to understand, okay, we're looking at, at a, an Israelite reconstruction right, of the universe that they come from and the field of play that they come from when we're talking about beliefs and deities um, and life and death, and that we have to kind of understand it on those terms for us to then decide what we want to do with that text. So I want, I want to go there a little bit um, with you this morning and then um, maybe some other groovy stuff. All right. So let's look at the text. And I was studying with my Chabruta partner this weekend. She jumped on Chatsi Halayla which means the literally chatsi, chatsi, half, half night. So this is not midnight. I don't know where midnight comes from exactly, but 
it's the sense of the middle of the night. And maybe for some people, middle of the night is midnight. For me, that's when I'm starting to wind down. <laughs> so whatever you would imagine, and maybe a people who the sun went down, you know, at five, six, that was the middle of the night to call it midnight because the sun rises at what, five or I don't even know. Um, but let's just say it rises at five or six in the morning. So maybe midnight, but so, but think middle of the night, right? So the scariest time for all humankind living in the ancient world, and I would say even today when we have to lie down alone, no matter what's going on in our day, whether we're lying next to three people or nobody, we all ultimately lie down alone with our own thoughts, our own fears, our own anxieties, our own shame, our own glee, our own hope, our own fear. Um, and that's always been the case. But you add in the ancient world that there was just a lot less protection. There wasn't fake light unless it was a fire or a candle, right? And not everybody could afford that. Um, and so the nighttime was the dark time. The nighttime was the time of vulnerability. The night had a different kind of power associated with it. And all kinds of funky things could happen at Chatsi Halayla, this like, you know, this mid middle of the night time. And my Haruta partner who's very much into Kabbalah and very much into um, really knowledgeable about Zohar and all of those texts. You know, she said Chatsi Halayla has a very clear association with it about the kind of powers that can be activated only at this time. So it is not at all an accident that we have this business happening at Chatsi Halayla, the middle of the night. What's going to happen at the middle of the night? God struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the cattle. And Paro got up in the night with all his courtiers and all the Egyptians because there was a loud cry in Egypt, for there was no house where there was not someone dead. And he called Moses and Aaron in the night and said, up, depart from among my people, you and the Israelites with you. Go worship Yudhe as you said. Also, take your flocks, because before... Pharaoh says, go without your flocks. And Moses, Moses says, no, 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 no. We have to make offerings. We have to take our flocks. So now Pharaoh says, take your flocks and your herds, as you said, and be gone. And may you bring a blessing upon me also. Think about Yaakov wrestling with the angel or the demon or whatever we decide it is. And then that thing says to Yaakov, as Yaakov is emerging victory or like has held his own and the light is coming, this thing says to Yaakov, bless me, right? So it seems that once one has proven a certain level of um, power, then the defeated one asks for a bracha. So the Egyptians urged the people on, impatient to have them leave the country, for they said, Kulanu Metim will all be dead. And they have every reason to fear that. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls wrapped in their cloaks upon their shoulders. The Israelites had done Moses' bidding and borrowed from the Egyptians objects of silver and gold and clothing. All right, so we're going to look a little bit, maybe if we have time, at this word uh, borrowed. <laughs> right. So Baish Alu, and they borrowed from Egypt, right? 
silver and gold and clothing. So what does it mean to say borrow in this context? I'll let y'all sit with that. Can I borrow a Kleenex? Can I borrow a cigarette? Can I borrow a Band-Aid? Like, really? Okay. And God had disposed the Egyptians favorably toward the people, and they let them have their request. Thus, they stripped the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot, and I'm going to argue with 100,000 and say it is 600 units that travel out, meaning we don't, we're not sure that LF means thousand in ancient Hebrew. In biblical Hebrew, it can mean a military unit. Vigam Erev Rav Itam. So this is what I try to point out lots of times. I said it to you last time we were together, that a mixed multitude also went up with them. So there is a whole article on the Erev Rav on like, what does this mean? Um, and we can talk a little bit about that maybe. So you all decide what you want to talk about. <laughs> so we can talk a little bit about what does it mean to say borrow. We can talk a little bit about more about what is this Erev Rav? What is the argument in the tradition about who and what these people were? And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had taken out of Egypt, for it was not leavened since they had been driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Those of you who bake can tell me a little bit more about what the heck that means. Uh, I don't know why, because they're in a hurry, they have no starter, you know, no, no leavening. I'm not sure what that's about, but I'm assuming it's punching it down, letting it rise, punching it down, letting it rise. That must have something to do with with leavening. I don't know. The length of the time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430th year to the very day, all the ranks of Yudhe departed from the land of Egypt. So to what very day? What's the day they arrive? <laughs> right? Is that Yaakov's family? Is it from the day a new pharaoh arose and enslaved the Jews? We don't know. Uh, there you go. That was for Yudhe a night of vigil to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That same night is Yudhe one of vigil for all the descendants of Israel throughout the ages. And Yudhe said to Moshe and Aharon, This is the law of the Passover offering. No foreigner, foreigner, no foreigner shall eat of it. But any slave a man has bought may eat of it once he has been circumcised. No bound or hired laborer shall eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break a bone of it. The whole community of Israel shall offer it. Now, look at this. This is interesting. It just said a foreigner doesn't eat it. If a stranger who dwells with you would offer the Passover to Yudhe Buffet, all his males must be circumcised. Then he shall be admitted to offer it. He shall then be as a citizen of the country, but no uncircumcised person may eat of it. There's a difference between a stranger and a foreigner. I think this is a very important thing. This is another conversation we could have. What does it mean, right? That the commandment to do the very thing that makes you kind of identify with the Israelite narrative of freedom from Egypt that you're going to do in your land when you get there what does it mean that a foreigner doesn't participate in that, but a stranger who lives with you and circumcises themselves does? All right. 
there shall be one law for the citizen and for the stranger who dwells among you. I think this is critical. My Harucha and I had an argument about it, um, uh, which is the most fun you have as rabbis is to argue about this stuff. Um, we had a big argument about it. I think I won. Um, but I think this is a critical and important piece of, um, of Torah that I just feel like we need to like highlight in every Torah scroll. Um, and the Israelite and all the Israelites did so as Yudhebabhe had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. That very day, God freed the Israelites from the land of Egypt, troop by troop. Then we get this business in chapter 13 about consecrating every firstborn man and beast. The first issue of every womb among the Israelites is mine. Moshe says to the people, remember this day on which you went free from Egypt, the house of bondage. How Adonai freed you from it with a mighty hand. No leavened bread shall be eaten. You go free on this day in the month of Aviv, the month of spring. So when God has brought you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and the Jebusites, which God swore to your ancestors to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall observe in this month the following practice. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day, there shall be a festival, Chag, to Adonai. Throughout the seven days, so this is Chag HaMatzot. This is the festival of Matzah. Throughout the seven days, unleavened bread shall be eaten. No leavened bread shall be found with you. There's a lot in the tradition that's done with this phrase. Why doesn't it just say there shall be no leavening found? Why does it have to say with you? So if you want to talk about that, we can talk about that. And no leaven shall be found in all your territory. And you shall explain to your child on that day. Some of you should know this. You should know this sentence. Why do you know this sentence? Because if you're a Jew who's been practicing for a while, you have sat at many a Seder where it says, you shall explain to your child on that day. It is because of what Adonai did for me when I went free from Egypt. Remember what happens in the Haggadah next? I myself, right, went out. You are to consider yourself as if you've gone out from Mitzrayim. And this shall serve you as a sign on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead in order that the teaching of Adonai may be in your mouth, that with a mighty hand, Yudhei freed you from Egypt. You shall keep this institution at its set time from year to year. And when God has brought you to the land of the Canaanites that God swore to your ancestors and has given it to you, you shall set apart for God every first issue of the womb, every male firstling that your cattle drop shall belong to Yudhei and the firstborn male among your children, you shall redeem from that status is what that means. And when in time to, and there's a reason I'm reading all this. And when in time to come, your child asks you saying, what does this mean? You shall reply. Anybody been to Seder? It was with a mighty hand that Yutei brought us out of Egypt from the house of bondage, right? Um, so it shall be a sign upon your hand and as a symbol on your forehead with a mighty hand did Adonai free us from Egypt. That means, what did the rabbis do with this? They put it in the tefillin. This is in the tefillin because it says you shall bind it as a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead. This text is in the tefillin. So we can also talk about that. Okay, so we have lots and lots to talk about. But first, Judith has her hand up. Does the pinion habin have anything to do with this redemption of the firstborn? This is pinion habin. Okay. This is where it comes from. Okay. That's what I meant. 
Yes, that the redemption of the firstborn uh, is because all firstborn are they have sacral status because they belong to Adonai because Adonai freed us and did not kill the firstborn of our people in Egypt. Therefore, that is a sacral status. They have to be redeemed from the sacral status to be a tailor. And it's usually money that is paid. Correct. Money, yeah. money, just like if your child was dedicated to the temple, you had to buy that child back if you didn't right. want the child to serve. So it was that you, so you give money and the child is redeemed. That money is given to Sadaka. When my when I divorced my first husband, the bag of the silver dollars that was the Pinyon Habin had remained in my house. And he called me about a year later and said, I forgot something. May I have that back? And of course it was his and it was part of his, his heritage. So he got it back, of course. Well, that money was supposed to go to charity, but we won't. We won't well, I'm, we sure, won't I'm sure it did. I'm sure, I'm it, sure did. it did. Okay. I mean, when he was when he was redeemed, it should have gone to charity when he was an infant. Well, it did went to him, <laughs> okay, and, and then to me, and then back to him to charity. Okay. And what does um, the word rav mean? Rav means um, so. That's a good question. Uh, rav, in general, is understood to mean wide, abundant, oh, lots. So that's why the title of those of us who have the term rav. Rabbi, Rav means abundant, meaning an abundance of learning. That's what our title is. Somebody who's spent a lot of time studying this stuff. That's all it means. And and shalom, to, shalom Rav, the song. An abundant peace, a wide peace we ask of you, oh God. Okay, thank shalom you. Shalom Rav, an abundant, broad, you know, huge peace do we ask of you. Thank you. Um, okay. So lots going on here. So, but I don't have the text in front of me. Um, Amy, you asked about some uh, things to talk about. Erev Rav to me has always meant Jews by choice. That in the sense that at that point, okay, the original Israelites that came out from Egypt was not just those, quote, born Jewish but people who chose. And the whole issue is whether we're all Jews by choice, whether by birth or not. And the second thing I I wanted to lay on the table was this wonderful thing about the arm signed upon your hand, which is in what you do physically and the frontlets between your eyes, which is how you look at the world, which is Trillin. And I wonder if you could talk about those two things because they've always, to me at least, been very meaningful. Great. All right, so we'll talk about Tfilin, Erev Rav. Anybody else? Got something? All right. Let's look, um, shall we, at, I want to, because I really do want to look at this firstborn stuff. So that, oh, and the idea from Sachs, which I think is also really amazing, um, of why all, which is why I kept reading, like why at this moment, why the focus on your children when you get to the land of Israel at this particular moment in our story. Okay. Um, so, and just spoiling the Egyptians, oh, we have so much to do. Okay. So when we talk about the, uh, when we talk about the 
origins of the biblical Pesach, right? And we're talking about the, you know, this whole narrative, this whole story. I'm not going to read the whole article with you. I, of course, will have Bert share it with you. But we certainly see uh, apotropaic elements, of course, the blood on the door, right? Awarding, right? We totally understand that. We all get that. It happens at night, like so many things. Um, it's about liminality, that state of they're not yet free, but they're about to go out. They're, they're claiming their freedom, but they don't have that status yet. So it's this in-between and liminality and blood always come together. We talked about this with Tipora, right? This idea of liminality and adolescence and shifting status, blood and that state often go together. Um, uh, the blood sacrifice at nighttime um, we totally get like that the that the Pesach lamb right and that stuff to happen at night. We totally we totally get that. All right, I want to talk about this Mashchit, the destroyer that goes out to slay the firstborn. So if you if we want to talk about the origins of this, and I think it's important to do that so that we remember this is not this is not new with the Israelites. The Israelites did not go. Hey, I know what kind of God I want to worship. One who kills babies, right? That's, that's not how it happens. It, this, these stories grow out of other stories in the neighborhood. The early Israelites would have inherited their pagan Mesopotamian Canaanite, as, I, as we keep talking about all the time. They would have inherited those practices and superstitions and rituals and stories and understandings of how the world works. And I just think it helps us understand our own tradition better to kind of look at a little bit of that in this instance. So so if you have the mashchit, the destroyer, in our case, it's the angel of death, right? It's the malach It's the destroyer that God, Yudhei controls and sends out. That is probably not the origin of the destroyer. The destroyer is probably originally a deity, a God who destroys. Think of um, what is it in in uh, Eastern tradition, right? You know, the goddess who destroys um, everything like that. That is a very important force in nature is death and destruction. Mot in, in Egypt, right? Which is Mavet in Hebrew. All right. So the first understands the protection ritual as warding off evil from a malevolent deity, the Mashchit. Scholars speculate that the the ritual originated as a springtime rite observed by semi-nomadic shepherds when they prepared to move the flock to new grazing grounds. Fearing demons would attack the flock, the shepherds warded them off with blood through a protection ritual known as Pesach. So the Paschal lamb, right? This, This sacrifice that we are commanded to do. The term Pesach thus carries the meaning protection, as is found in Isaiah 31.5. The more familiar meaning of to pass over came about when the ritual was historicized and entered the narrative talking about Egypt. So it got reconstructed. Pesach gets reconstructed when you, when you have an all-powerful, an all-powerful, all-good God, why would you need to worry about demons, right? So... But, but that ritual doesn't go away. That instinct and impulse doesn't go away to protect the flocks against the mashchit, the destroyer. And so it just gets reconstructed 
to be a remembrance of the deliverance from the destroyer. That's kosher. That fits with Yodhe and monotheism. Okay, that's kosher. But we know the impulse is still to protect the flock, right, from, from the forces of, of death and danger and destruction. The cult of ancestors. A second approach associates the sacrifice with the cult of ancestors. While families lived together in nuclear family units, the cult was practiced by the mishpacha, the family, the larger kin network. Regular gathering to sacrifice and make offerings to mutual dead ancestors was an important part of organizing and maintaining living relationships with the, within the broader clan. And you see these footnotes here. You are welcome to look at the source material and find out more about it if you're curious. It can lead you down some very interesting rabbit holes. Tioni Zevit points out that sacrifices made on the ground, not on altars, are often associated with chthotic deities, ones that live in the ground or close to the ground. Examples of the ancestor cult are peppered throughout the Hebrew Bible, with the clearest being from 1 Samuel, where David asks leave to attend the yearly sacrificial meal for his entire mishpacha, his kinship group. As a ritual within the ancestor cult, sacrifice by the living members bound the dead ancestors to the living and to the unborn. The ancestors then protected the living and the unborn, and the unborn would in turn perpetuate the cult in their own time. Both of these ideas explain the pagan parts of the sacrifice, but neither idea, in my opinion, says our scholar, sufficiently addresses the threat of the mashchit and its smiting, the destroyer and its smiting. To this end, I think that some Mesopotamian lullabies can offer new insight. All right. So what she's doing is she's talking about the cult of the ancestors and protection from the mashchit and the Pesach offering, right? And that there's two connections through cultural anthropology to the pre-Israelite practices that would have given rise to this. But this is where it ties in for me. And what's one of the things that's so important about this for me is this is where it ties into the baby stuff. Mesopotamian lullabies were sung in order to ward off the demoness Lamashtu, who steals away baby and men's semen in order to gain the children she never had. It is noteworthy that Jewish lore has its own Lamashtu, Lilith. We know this, right? Those of us who have studied together, we know this. In the post-biblical text, the alphabet of Ben Sirach, Lilith states that she was created to harm infants. While the Mesopotamians may have been facing the realities of crib death, the lullabies have a sense of urgency. The baby must stop crying now, for the baby's cries were thought to alert Lamashtu that an infant was nearby. In one particular lullaby, Lamashtu sends out her helper demon, the evil eye, who flies around into doorways seeking to do harm. The lullaby describes the children as ceasing to cry through suffocation when the evil eye comes upon them. This description calls to mind the movie depictions of the Exodus, where the mashchit sneaks into the Egyptian houses and snuffs out the breath of the firstborn. Finally, the lullabies state that when the baby cries, it not only summons the demoness, but bothers El Habai, the god of the house in, uh, in Mesopotamian, Eli Bitum. The noise can become so disturbing that the Eli Bitum might actually leave the house. And if that happens, that's a really bad thing. Um, it was generally believed that the ancestor of the house offered protection for his or her descendants. 
This is where some people think the mezuzah originates. Therefore, if the ancestor of the house leaves, true disaster can follow since the house would now be open to demonic forces without any protection. Okay. So one thing she brings up is the mashchit comes into the house and smites. Like that's what the mashchit does. It, it destroys. The text is not clear who will be smitten. Yudhe will not let the destroyer enter and smite your home. I suggest, she says, that the individuals needing protection in the pre-Israelite shepherd ritual were infants and children. The ritual of painting the blood on the door then could be the pre-Israelite way to deal with the baby-snatching night demon Lamashtu, later identified as Lilith, just as the Mesopotamians ritually used lullabies to ward her off. In this reconstruction, the Israelites inherited these pagan rites from their semi-nomadic ancestors and later historicized and reinterpreted them into the story we are familiar with. Pesach commemorates the flight from Egypt, which happened on the heels of the 10th plague, the killing of the firstborn children. So there's a there seems to be a long history on many levels here of danger to infants and danger to newborn of the flock uh, as well. Um, and to the dependence on shepherds, the dependents are, of course, the sheep. So there's, there's a danger to the vulnerable, whether it's the sheep who depend on human shepherds to care for them um, and the demon looking to destroy them or the, um, or the infant uh, in Mesopotamia. And so, so these rituals of warding, these rituals of protection and the Pesach itself is both to, both to appease the ancestors and to ward off uh, danger to the newborn. And it's reconstructed in the Israelite tradition to be uh, this idea that the Egypt, the Egyptian babies were slain and the e- Israelite babies were delivered. They were saved. Um, so, so the origins being so much older than the Israelite narrative um, helps me, anyway, deal with those texts to know that there is a universal an understandable sense of vulnerability uh, for infants. And when you're talking about the ancient world, you are talking about um, a very high incidence of of infant death for lots of reasons, Um, but certainly a high mortality for infants. Um, And so it it makes sense that 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 impulse is really strong to find ways to protect the newborn and lots of stories about who's coming for the newborn. Um, and again, in Israelite uh, tradition, it gets reconstructed as uh, relating to the deliverance of the firstborn uh, of the Israelites. Okay, anything yet? We good? All right. Um, so, despoiling the Egyptians. So, th- this is uh, very much an active debate in the uh, rabbinic literature. What does it mean to say they Asked the Egyptians for stuff, for gold and jewels. What does it mean borrowed, knowing that they were never going to return them? So either you have to accept that the Hebrew sha'al here means borrow. And if it means borrow, then you have to deal with the fact that the Israelites trusted they were now leaving forever. They had no intention of coming back. So what do you do with Israelites 
intentionally, quote unquote, borrowing, knowing they're not going to return it. Or you say you argue with the translation borrow and you say sha'al does not mean ask, like request to use something. It's a demand. I ask of you. Here's one thing I ask of you, meaning, you know, it's, it's more of a demand. Give me your stuff. <laughs> what are they going to say? They've just watched the destruction. Every home has just seen the destruction of its firstborn. Every home in Egypt. And now the people whose God did that come saying, uh, hello, can I have the gold and, and silver in your house, please? Like, what, what, what are they going to say? Right. And so ask in this sense is like, yeah, they're asking, but like, <laughs> what kind of ask is that? Um, and so in that case, you don't have to worry so much about the, the Israelites being disingenuous. They're saying, give me your stuff. Now you have to deal with, okay, well, what is, how do we feel about that? But God predisposes them, right? The Egyptians to give generously to the exiting uh, Israelites. And so this article goes through all of the translations of that term, of the term, uh, Sha'al, right? So we get it highlighted. Shall borrow and you shall spoil um, the Egyptians. So this goes through the entire history of what you do with the fact that if it's borrow, how do we deal with the fact that the Israelites knew they weren't coming back? And if it's ask, what does that mean about, okay. <laughs> um, so in this article, the the way that it's dealt with in terms of um what kind of a request is that? Like, really? Like, are we proud of that? Um, and even for borrow, say some of the commentators, it's that it's justified. <laughs> it's that the Egyptians took the labor of the Israelites for 400 years, and this is recompense. So this is, um, what's the word we use now when we're talking about it? Reparations. This is reparations. Um, so we're talking about that right now vis-a-vis um, right, American slavery. And enslaving, you know, other populations as Americans, we're talking about the fact that reparations seems to be universally among a lot of us understood to be a good idea, like how you do that. I think it's impossible. But for the Israelites, it was pretty clear. Give me everything you have. Right. So reparations were immediate. Right. We talk about Nazi Germany. Right. And, and reparations that were made to the state of Israel, to survivors. Um, so reparations is understood pretty universally to be a fair and just way to deal with a past theft, if you will, right, of people's lives and freedom and work and labor and and ability to create a life. Um, and so lots of folks want to say, OK, so reparations we get is a good thing. And it was completely justified in the Israelite case because they'd been there for 430 years. And that labor had been stolen, and this is taking back from, from the Egyptians. All right. So uh, for BertTorah.com, let's go to all essays, and let's go to Erev Rav. All right. So Erev Rav, right? A mixed multitude of meanings. So lest you think there is... Just an argument over, like, you know, we, we know they weren't Israelite. All right, we'll start there. We, we know they're not Israelites. So this Erev Rav, what does it mean? So then you have to come up with the, you look at both words. You look at Erev. So Erev, 
ayin resh vet. You have to start with that word. And that word you can either translate into being some kind of soldiers. Our Hartman teacher, uh, Professor Emeritus Israel Knoll, who is an expert um, in, in biblical stuff. Like crazy smart, like crazy, crazy knowledgeable, crazy town. Um, Israel Knoll, um, he argues, as does uh, this other scholar, Sha'ol Bar, that this refers to mercenaries, that there were mercenaries who went out with the uh, Israelites. Um, that could be. But whether or not it's, it's those people who were not Israelite, they were mercenaries, it's clear that it's a mix of peoples who go out, the Israelites and some other folks. The second word, rav, is an adjective meaning great or many. And thus the standard translation of the term Erev rav as a mixed multitude. He gives us the scholar, William Prop, the scholar who says, um, tw- Exodus 12, 38, gives no indication of how numerous the Erev rav was conceived to be, right? We read that verse. It just says an Erev rav went out with them. It doesn't say that it was a big group. Nevertheless, the Midrash, as is its wont, takes this very far. Thus, the Mechilta of Rabbi Ishmael glosses the term Erev Rav to be 1,200,000. Akiva says it's almost two and a half million. Reb Natan says it's three and a half million. Why not? Okay. Um, so, so one is like, it's huge. Rav means huge. Absolutely gargantatoid, this, this, this group. All right. But there's another argument that says, don't read Erev Rav as two separate words. Rather, it's reduplicative. So look over here, if you can see where I'm doing my cursor. This is Erev Rav in Hebrew. You don't have to know Hebrew to see the bolded letters. The bolded letters are the same right? The only difference is this ayin. Sometimes we get a doubling of the last two consonants in a word to kind of give it weight and heft. If that's true, don't read Erev Rav as two different words, but rather read it like this, Arav Rav. One word. Doubling those last two letters, you would read Arav Rav. Well, and that's how the, the Samaritan uh, Humash uh, treats it as Aravrav. So it doesn't make any comment then on the size of the group. It's just a repetition of the last two radicals. And we see this in the commentary of uh, Kasuto. So if you read Aravrav as Aravrav, then you might want to tie that to Asafsuf. And who's Asafsuf? Asafsuf are the ones who start complaining right, about not having meat. And this gets translated, right, uh, in many cases as riffraff, to give in English the same sense of the Hebrew. Asafsuf, aravrav, riffraff, right? So you can hear in English, it's the same idea. Um, riffraff, it's like if you repeat it, it's kind of like it, it's an emphasis that it's not a necessarily a good thing. So if you want to put those two together, then... Aravrav and Asafsu are negative. It's a negative connotation to who is this Aravrav. And that goes back to Second Temple times, to the Septuagint. Both Arav and Asafsu, they link to mixed crowd. 
Uh, and that that's not a great thing. Uh, what do we want to do here? Riffraff, right? So here we get Robert Alter uh, calls it a motley throng. <laughs> and um, there is uh, Everett Fox is the one who uses actually riffraff uh, to translate it, um, this idea. All right. So either they're mercenaries, but but our scholars lifting up that one possibility is they are meant to be a group of Egyptians and or other ethnic groups who were living among the Israelites and decide to leave with them. Mercenaries <coughs> uh, means in a, a military alliance. Right. Yudhe Vafe just proved that Yudhe Vafe just kicked butt in Egypt. So if you're a mercenary, who do you want to swear your sword to? Right. The most powerful God, obviously. Moshe comes off as pretty powerful here. That's the dude you want to line up with if you're a mercenary. And things are not going well in Egypt. <laughs> so you might want to like throw your lot in if you're a soldier. You might be, feel fine about going out into the wilderness with this group rather than stay in Egypt and face the chaos, right, of who you're going to have to work for next in Egypt. Gerim, right? This is going to be for Rashi, right? And this is where I had a big fight with my colleague, um, is that for Rashi and for lots of folks in the tradition, they want to see these as converts. And, of course, my question to her was converts to what? Converts to what? There is no what to convert to. There's no Judaism. You're either Israelite or you're non-Israelite, period. And when you get to the commandment to keep the the story and keep these rituals, the the ger, the stranger who lives with them, eats it too. So why do you need convert, right? Now, to, to Bert's point, I do believe it means folks who signed up and signed on to this project, this crazy, crazy project. To like go off in the middle of nowhere to the land that I will show you and you'll know it when you get there. That's crazy town. And did choose to not worship anymore or at least identify by staying with the Egyptian empire and its religion. But I don't need to say convert to say folks who align themselves with the Israelite people. But the tradition, of course, wants to go there. The rabbis want to go there. So Rashi goes there, um, Midrash Rabbah um, sees a, a split between the Egyptian, uh, be- among the Egyptians, between those who joined the Israelites and those then who drowned. Uh, then we have uh, those who were just taking um, an opportunistic right, uh, advantage of the fact that some folks were leaving. We didn't have such a great life here anyway. Yudhe Buffet seems to be kicking butt. We're going with them. So just kind of opportunists. Then there are those who want to argue they are foreigners who had already intermarried with Israelites. Uh, The Zohar, you got to love this. You got to love the Jews. The Zohar says, these are the group of Egyptian magicians who worked from midday to early afternoon because that's what Erev means. That's when they would have served. So Erev, which means evening and mixture. So it's both a mixture and it can mean evening, Erev, right? Erev Rosh Hashanah, Erev Yom Kippur. You know that word, whether you know it or not. Erev. So it could be that these are the Egyptian magicians who served at Erev, 
an Arab in Egypt met from mid to late afternoon. Okay, you got to love that. A bunch of them, Rav, a bunch of them <laughs> went out with, with the Israelites. All right, then Erev Rav becomes a slur. Um, and even in, uh, and then you, it was used against the Frankists, the ones who thought Jacob Frank was the Messiah. Then uh, in uh, modern uh, Israeli parlance, Erev Rav is riffraff or rabble. So again, it gets a, a negative connotation. Uh, to Bert's point, I don't find it helpful to use a pejorative to describe this group. I don't think we need to look for instigators outside of Israelites to be the ones who start the complaining. I think we are quite capable as Jews to do the complaining ourselves, right? I don't think our story is nearly as meaningful if it's about the riffraff starting the complaining. I don't believe that was the original intention of those stories. I believe the original intention of those stories is to say it's within each of us to forget how lucky we are to not be in Egypt. It's just human nature. I think these stories are written by people who know that it's our tendency. You know, I just almost leapt all over Eliana the other day because she said something I wanted to go, do you know how privileged you are? Do you know what you have? Do you have any idea what just came out of your mouth and how that sounds? And I was like, Amy, honey, she wasn't in Egypt. You were. Right. So, right. So <laughs> my point being, it, it doesn't, it doesn't take much for us to forget, right. And to take for granted our status as not being slaves in Egypt. And I think these stories were written by people who knew that and who leapt on their kids. You sh- we went to school with bare feet in the snow. Upright. So like, how dare you take your status for granted? And yet, of course, we do all the time. And so it's much more meaningful for me. The Erev Rav means those who signed up, those who signed up to come with us. And for me, that they eat the, the Passover offering and are part of this ritual of telling this story, when they get to the land, they just have to be circumcised, meaning you know they, they accept the cultural norms of the Israelites. They don't they don't convert. They don't become Israelite. They're called a ger. And they participate fully. And, and, and in another place, you saw it said, they are obligated. There is a, there's one law for the Israelite and the ger. For me, that says, you don't have to convert to sign up for this project. Do I encourage conversion? Yes, for lots of reasons. But I think we have way jumped on a distinction between Jew and non-Jew. And I understand, believe me, I've, I've, we've talked about it as rabbis ad nauseum, um, why it is that we have the status of who's a Jew and why is that important? I get all the historical influences, but I think if we return to this story, if we return to Torah, Torah didn't care. Torah said, whoever's part of this project, you're part of this project. You might have slightly different commandments. You might have slightly different whatever, but there's one law for all of you. And if the if a non-Jewish parent is driving that kid to religious school and that parent supports that kid being raised as Jewish, does it really matter if the parent isn't Jewish? They've signed on to be part of this project. They've signed on to sit at the Seder table. 
our tradition says, yes, that's how it's always been. And they were considered part of the community and they were obligated by the same um, by the same traditions to, to offer the Pesach offering. So for me, it's about do you live among us and support and come along with us? And if so, great. Welcome. Terrific. Now, again, I encourage conversion for lots of reasons, but it's not because conversion will mean you are somehow more welcome or more legitimately a part of this community. I believe it confers something about identity that is super important in this age and this era in which we are so confused and so lonely and so cut off from mythology and the power of our stories and the power of of connecting to something bigger than us and about knowing this is not a solo flight. We're not meant to do this alone. Our individualism in America is killing us. We have rates of depression and suicide that are through the roof for the richest country in the history of the world. And so I believe that has a lot to do with the fact that we think we're in this alone and we lift that up as a value in this country. And identity with a people is something for me that works completely against the poison of individualism, not individual rights, not the fact that we should honor individuals as individuals, not that, but individualism as an ism is dangerous and we're seeing it. We see, we see it, right? Consumption. That's the heart of everything. The more you have, whatever, right? So, okay. One more thing. And then I'm going to shut up um, and let you talk. I'm going to hold you a little over 11 because we got started late. Um, But I want to show you this because, and I think this is what Sachs is saying. So Sachs is talking about this moment where they're about to leave. They're about to get out of Egypt and what do we have? We have, is, is, does Moshe talk about freedom and the land flowing with milk and honey or the journey, what they're building? No. What does he talk about? He talks about education, specifically about the duty of parents to their children. He speaks about the questions children may ask when the epic events that are about to happen are at best a distant memory. He tells the Israelites to do what Jews have done from then till now. Tell your children the story. Do it in the maximally effective way. Reenact the drama of exile and exodus, slavery and freedom. Get your children to ask questions. Make sure that you tell the story as your own, not as some dry account of history. Say that the way you live and the ceremonies you observe are because of what God did for me, not for my ancestors, but me. Make it vivid. Make it personal. Make it live. And then he goes through the few the times that we saw that just now in our Torah portion. Um, wh- why was this the mo- most important thing at this moment? We are the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. And identity begins in the story parents tell their children. And I'm going to extend that, right? That adults say to children. The narrative provides the answer to the three fundamental questions every reflective individual must ask at some stage. Who am I? Why am I here? How then shall I live? There are many answers to these questions, but the Jewish ones are, I am a member of the people whom God rescued from slavery to freedom. 
I am here to build a society that honors the freedom of others, not just my own. And I must live in conscious knowledge that freedom is the gift of God, honored by keeping God's covenant of law and love. Then he talks about when this was forgotten in the West, one in the 17th and 18th century, because everything had all been about religious, um, you know, war. Uh, and so, you know, the Middle Ages was based on these conflicts and wars around around religion. Um, so he talks about, you know, th- then we moved away from um, uh, where am I? Therefore, let us worship only the things that are universal reason and observation, philosophy and science. Right. So the Enlightenment, essentially. Let us have systems, not stories. So we move away from our stories and our identity as peoples, as connected to our religious values because of all of the conflict and the developments in philosophy and science. And if we just adhere to the universals, then we will become one humanity. But of course, says uh, Sachs, that cannot be done, at least not as humanity is presently constituted. The reaction when it came was fierce and disastrous. The 19th century saw the return of the repressed. Identity came back with a vengeance, this time based not on religion, but on one of the three substitutes for it, the nation state, race, and class. So um, he says in the last 50 years, the West has embarked on a second attempt to abolish identity, this time in the opposite direction. What the secular West now worships is not the universal, but the individual, the self, the me. And he says, today's hyper-individualism will not last. We are social animals. We cannot live without identities, families, communities, and collective responsibilities, which means we cannot live without the stories that connect us to a past, a future, and a larger group whose history and destiny we share. With the hindsight of 33 centuries, we can see how right Moshe was. A story told across the generations is the gift of an identity. And when you know who you are and why, you can navigate the wilderness of time with courage and confidence. This is a life-changing idea. And I think that's, I think it's it's a beautiful insight. And I think it's an important insight that Moshe doesn't focus on freedom. Moshe at this moment, the text does not put a speech in Moshe's mouth about the beauty of freedom. Instead, the text says, teach your children about this moment. Connect your next generations to this story as if it happened to you because it did happen to you because you are not a slave, right? You were delivered from that. You are not on third because you hit a triple. It is a gift and passionately explain that in the first person to the next generation and identify with it yourself. So that you figure out how is it I'm supposed to live? Who am I? Why am I here? And what does that mean about how I'm supposed to live? That's the point of an identity. And that's, for me, one of the reasons to encourage conversion is to encourage people to really, truly own this story and to really feel totally a part of this people and this narrative and this crazy set of cultural ways of looking at the world, this crazy history we have um, since the exodus, obviously, you know, like there's been a lot of history since then, a lot of philosophy since then. And to truly put that on as one's own, um, I think is 
is a really important thing in this era, like Sachs says, where we've pushed back against identity and the ways we've pushed back have not worked and have not produced terribly great things, right? Something's going to substitute for an identity with the people. It, it can be race. It can be class, right? It can be lots of things, but, um, but, but the, the conflict between groups doesn't stop. So I always ask, well, what's a productive identification with a group and what isn't? And for me, identification with the Jewish people is an incredibly important uh, and and healthy thing when 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 we are honest and thoughtful and have conversations like this, looking honestly at our texts, looking honestly at our values, looking honestly at what that draws us to and what it draws us to stand against. Um, and that story originates in Egypt, right? To cry out against their own oppression was the first step. Where was God for 430 years? Well, God forgot that, that the descendants of Israel were in slavery. They had to stand against it and cry out against it first. What do we stand for? What do we stand against? And as long as we're honest about being brutal in our um, evaluation of that, then identity with the Jewish people for me and any people with their history and their culture and their literature and their humor and their food and their ways of looking at the world can be a really healthy corrective to our individualism in 2022. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.